another episode of mine. This is Mesa Pod. This is your host, Kevin Pollack, from often sunny Southern California. Where are you around the world? Are you writing to us? Are you letting us know what you think of the series as well as the podcast? I want to know it all. Questions. Questions you have for previous guests of the podcast or any person who's ever worked on the show. You have a question for. I want them. Write to us. My Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. That's my Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. Yeah, I loved hearing from you, and I'm going to continue to read all of your emails and reply. It is uh, care for what you wish, Kev, in terms of the email bounty. So uh, I'll read a couple at the end of the show, and I thank all of you for writing and also being patient for me to get to your emails. I am. It's a full-time job, and I'm enjoying it, just so you know. I love your enthusiasm. I had hoped you would be there when I devised this uh, lunacy, and uh, bless each and every one of you. You are, and I thank you. Today's guest, Matilda Shadagas. We get into the spelling and the pronouncing of her last name, but uh, her enthusiasm of working on the show not just comes through in the podcast, but I'm telling you every day on set, when I was anywhere near Matilda, there was an energy and an enthusiasm. When I see her at events, it's the same. Some of us are as grateful and enthusiastic about this production as we should be, and she is the gold standard. Yeah, so we uh, break down episode four, season one, and uh, there's a lot of insights. It's as if Matilda kept a diary. She is a wealth of information. I'm excited for you to hear this, and I was excited to talk to her, and I loved our conversation. Super inside and insights of the making of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Here now, my conversation with Matilda Shadagas. You know what? You better say your last name once for me, because I'm going to screw it up repeatedly. Shadagas. That's right. I listened to it online over and over again. I spelled it out and said, you know, pronunciation, Shadagas. It just looks scary. There's just it too many certainly con- does. <laughs> There's too many consonants, not enough vowels. Shadagas. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that threatened. Please welcome Matilda Shadagas, if I'm saying that correctly. Shadagas. Or Shadagas. <laughs> you say Shadagas and I say potato. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, Matilda. Oh my goodness, of course. Thank you so much for asking me. Yeah, we're celebrating all things Maisel, you and I, uh, your introduction to the world, how you came to be a part of it, and then we'll talk about season one, episode four. Let's start, of course, with your introduction to the world. Let's do this. Well, I'm Matilda Shadagas. Hi, I play Zelda on Marvel's Mrs. Maisel. And you had asked, did you ask how I... Got to be Zelda? Was that the question? Yes. How did you come to be a part of this world? How did it all begin? The genesis, the origin story. Well, I was lucky enough that my agent sent me on the audition. Uh-huh. And I actually had three callbacks for the most callbacks that I've ever had for anything that I had auditioned for. And when you went, did you see similarly dressed or in appearance women or men that had come in for the part in the hallways? And what was that? Yes, I will tell you, I was very happy with my choice of dress. Everyone there was dressed in that stereotypical black and white maid uniform, Ah. right? Like the black, black dress, the white apron. And of course, they're all Eastern European of all different kinds. So originally, the pilot wasn't written specifically like she's Polish, she's Russian, she's, you know, Serbian or nothing, which just said Eastern European. So it's like all these women were there. And I had decided before I went into the audition that I was going to not dress like a maid, that I was going to dress in beautiful 1950s vintage dress that I had. I curled my hair, I had it down. So when I walked in, I absolutely nobody looked like me at all. Great. And I thought to myself, either this is going to bite me in the butt <laughs> or it's going to help me stand yeah. out. You know, so and were you told by either Amy or Dan afterwards that it did, in fact, stand out for them along with your performance? No, no, they never said anything. I actually never I never asked them. Uh-huh. OK, so, yeah. Well, that's on you. That's on me. I know. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you, for one of the callbacks, they had asked me to improv with Dan right. and he played Abe. Right. And it was hands down like the funnest audition that I've ever had. We were oh, wow. laughing so hard at the audition. And I just remember thinking, this is so great. These people are so nice. They're so awesome. So uh, yeah. And it just, that feeling has just flown 
through throughout all these seasons. Yeah. Like from that moment on with like all the the joy and the laughter. Right. Now the natural accent you have does not come from Poland. It comes from where? Chicago? Chicago, exactly. How could you tell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was born and raised in Chicago on the South Side. Uh-huh. But uh, my first language is Polish. My sister was there. So she came over with my parents when she was like six. And then uh, we lived uh, with my grandparents who didn't speak a lick of English except for hello and wow. banana. So, hello and banana. Banana. Hello and banana. Yeah. <laughs> now, was it decided after you were hired that your character would be from Poland? Because that's what you could speak. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And they had made that decision to, you know, let's use that talent. Let's, you know, so for us, I think it was season two. Mm-hmm. I think that's when with that Yom Kippur dinner yeah. scene was. Yeah. That was the first time that they had me use my Polish. Mm. So, and I was just, I was just thrilled. I was just like, this is really great. Yeah. I remember the moment, I think, either I was there or I watched it of you speaking your a native land country. I got to, I got to swear a lot. So that, that was really fantastic. Right. That was the part that, that had to be explained to me. You know, she's swearing right now. And I, I felt like I had, I had assumed that, but it was great to hear. Yeah. Well, what an amazing thing. So you had three callbacks, which was not normal. And, um, how many before you started reading with Dan? Was that just the last one or? Last one. Yeah. The, the last one, yeah. Did he know that Tony Shalhoub was going to play Abe? You said he was reading Abe's part. That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. He didn't tell you. He did not. He did not tell me. Yeah. And was he acting like a Jewish person? Because Dan Palladino, of course, is very much not. I just know that he was very funny. Yeah. Well, sure. He was very, <laughs> very funny. That he is. And, uh, I actually didn't realize that he played such a huge role in Family Guy Mm -hmm. for the first season being, I think he was executive producer. And I had been such a slam fan of Family Guy. And I'm really glad that I didn't know that until after the fact, because I think that would have made me incredibly nervous during the audition. Yeah. Of course, Amy was, you know, Amy was there too. And I was like, oh. Hi, Amy. You know, like, you know, everyone knows Amy. Sure. You know, but yeah. So Dan was like more like behind the, behind the scenes kind of, but it was, yeah, it was just so much fun. Such a fun audition. And where were you when you got the call that you got the part? Do you remember that moment? Yes. I was sitting on the floor Mm -hmm. of my gym in the locker room. Oh my. Yeah. Because I was being lazy that day. I was just like going to go to the gym. And then when I got there, I'm just like, "Mm, let me just sit down for a moment, just do some stretches. And then my phone rang and it was my agent. And he's just like, guess what? And I was like, oh my God. So it was, yeah, I'll never forget that. It's like women are, you hear the women showering in the other room. There's like steam everywhere, you know, like you hear the echoes of the the locker room, locker slamming and stuff, you know. Is it safe to assume you got up off the floor? Is it safe to assume? (laughs) Actually, yeah. So, yeah. So it was the opposite. Usually you fall on the floor when you get such good news. And I started on the floor, so. (laughs) Yeah, I I imagined going to a gym and spending all my time on the floor. Uh, (laughs) And I like the idea of never actually leaving the locker room. That's that's heads up right there. It's psychological, man. I'm just like, well, you know, at least I made it to the gym today. That's right. <laughs> you know, one of those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And then was, I guess you were a part of the pilot? Like, I'm trying to remember. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about finally playing the part for the first time in front of the camera and meeting the other actors. Oh, it was, uh, I'll be honest, I was pretty nervous. Sure. So for the pilot, already from the get-go, they already, Amy and Dan had already established that love slash nemesis relationship between Zelda and Abe. So it was very fun playing off of Tony with that. Mm -hmm. Everybody was so nice. And we filmed the pilot in an actual real apartment. Right. Here on Riverside Drive. Like it was, I think, like 113th Riverside. So they had like piled all of the people's furniture or a lot of it into their kitchen which we weren't shooting in at all. And I actually just was talking to Marin about this recently, just a couple of weeks ago. So me and Marin were like, really like just back to back, like right in the door of the kitchen because both of us were, you know, coming from the kitchen into the hallway. But we had to, but the whole kitchen was like stacked with their couches and their chairs and everything. Anyway, so she's like pressed right up against me. And I was like taking like big breaths and she could tell that, You know, I was nervous because this was going to be like my first entrance, like into the scene. And it's the pilot, you know, like this is like the first scene ever. And I'll never forget. She put her hand on my back and started rubbing it. 
and whispered in my ear saying, you'll be terrific. Don't worry. Don't be nervous. You'll be wonderful. And I was just like, how, how lovely. How lovely. I don't know. Just just how lovely. Those are the moments you never forget. It's a beautiful moment to share with any actor, let alone, you know, for your first moment on screen, because everyone, no matter who you are, is nervous about that very first take and introduction to a character, no matter how many takes, really, until you get one under your belt. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And it's usually just the one that's all I need and hear that you're a-okay. And anyways, how lovely of Marin to... It was just so generous of her, um, generous uh, as a human and generous as an actor to be that way. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget that. I was so grateful. Yeah. And now where were you when you heard or what was the moment, if there was one, when you heard it was going to go from pilot to two years, two seasons was the commitment from pilot. Was that something that I was um, on the subway? Uh, on the with floor. My, on the, exactly. <laughs> I ended up on the floor that time. Yeah. Cause I slid off. I was like, Oh my God. Um, my sister was visiting me from Chicago and um, we were sitting in one of those like two seaters in the corner. And uh, I can't remember what we're coming back from. We might've been coming back from actually seeing a play. Cause whenever she visited me, we always, you know, saw a little theater, but we're on the one train going uptown, coming back to my apartment. And um, I saw the email it was an email mm. that my agent had sent me and I read it and I was just like, I just started saying, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You know, my sister's yeah. like, what, 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 what? you know? And then she, she was like, Oh, I'm so happy that I got to be with you in this moment um, to share this yeah. you know, excitement and happiness with you. Family. Um, so yes, exactly. Family. Wow. 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 So yeah. Yeah. She's my yeah. biggest fan. I love her. She's really, really great. That's pretty great. You want to give a shout out to your sister? What's her name? Kathy. Oh, hey, Kathy. Yeah. Kathy Mueller. She's also a really great playwright as well. Oh, but, uh, yeah. A couple of writers. I've been doing some writing and it's um, it definitely helped during the pandemic. I got to tell you that. <laughs> yes. So much. Yeah. Like any kind of art, just meditative, get you out of your head, away from CNN 24-7. Yep. You know, so be expressive, be creative. Well, terrific. Now, before we break down episode four, season one, if there are any episodes or moments throughout the first four seasons that uh, have been shot to this point that we are recording, as we are recording, we just did the first couple of days of episode three of season five for a little chronological perspective. As we're recording this and super happy with uh, the way season five is going. But if there are any either table reads, like people have been talking about, you know, the absurd table reads that we have and the first time you experienced that or some other time when you were working with some of the other actors, anything that comes to mind. Well, the table reads, sure. I mean, I had never been to a table read before where you walk there's like, you know, gourmet chefs preparing food in the theme of that episode. Yeah. And, you know, they just went all out. Table reads really involve a production design. It is. Exactly. It was it was, it was full on art yeah. and production design. Exactly. Yeah, there's sets. It's not just the ridiculous over the top catering, as I like to tell people, a carving station. We had an ice sculpture this last table read. That was pretty, I saw that. I pretty saw over that, the yeah. top. <laughs> But it is the set design. There's production stills of the era, the theme. Nothing to do with anything that's been shot of the episode, because obviously it's a table read. Nothing's been shot. Um, yeah. And so that's your first memories. And then were there any scenes or episodes that member shooting that you can shed a little light on? or? Oh, just oh, so many. I mean, Coney Island was definitely magical. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I don't know how you felt, but it was magical on a number of levels, considering we had just been in isolation for so long. Yeah. And, you know, and then here in this like carnival atmosphere with like right. hundreds of extras, which obviously everyone was tested. Everyone, you know, everyone was tested. In, but in, it made it in, seem like a normal place because there exactly. were so many people and we had just exactly. Spent- which is something that, yes, that we didn't experience for that year and a half. And I thought, ironically, that it felt retro for that reason, because, you know, we didn't get to have that for a whole year and a half. So that was, yeah, that was really great. I do remember, there's just so much laughter. I do remember one scene, I can't remember what season it was, maybe it was two, I think it was season two, where it was uh, Tony, Rachel, and Marin sitting at dinner, 
uh, family dinner. So I'm going around scooping potatoes on everybody's plates. It had already been a long day. I mean, this is already like, we're already at like 12 hours. Everyone's kind of already, you know, getting past that point. So, you know, take after take, the more potatoes were being, um, they stayed on the spoon. So at one point, so we're doing this take. And at one point, Marn was the third person. And while I'm speaking and they're, you know, saying their lines too, I'm trying very casually to like get the potatoes off the spoon, you know, so it doesn't look like they're actually stuck. And I hear Dan from the other room say in his dry humor, um, Matilda, try not to fondle Marin's potato so much. <laughs> and it was just that mo- in that moment, because it, it, we just lost it. Yeah. We were laughing so hard. We were like, tears were coming out, you know? And yeah. it was just like... Yeah, there's so much pressure in those fast-moving scenes. And all you know is the potato's not coming off the spoon. And you want to use your fingers to help the potato get the hell off the I spoon. I know, I can't... Exactly. I, had, I couldn't use my fingers. I, I had no other utensil. I was just trying to... <laughs> but obviously, I, he could see it on the monitor what yeah. I was... <laughs> trying to do yeah it was it was just really funny but yeah you're there's so much choreography as you know obviously there's just so much choreography in the show take after take yeah which is beautiful how about moving in with the mazels when the weissmans were forced to oh that scene in season three where i'm watching tv with shirley played by caroline and yeah one of my favorites you see zelda for the first time not in uniform she's wearing like normal street clothes right Sure. You know, sitting, smoking a cigarette, gambling, watching a game show with Shirley, you know, yeah. talking back to Rose. And again, a swear word in Polish. So that's always fun. They threw uh-huh. that in there. But yeah, I loved I love that scene. Oh, nice. But it was it was definitely fun to have like more moments with you as well in that house. And in that season, we shot in a real house in Queens. Once again, we start in the actual place. Yes, yes. The Weissman's apartment in the pilot that was then built on stage or the Garment District interiors of Maisel and Roth that was eventually built on set. And now, yes, Shirley and Moshe's house was out in uh, Forest Hills, I think. I think it was, yeah. Season three, season four, they built it. And it was kind of crazy. The specifics of every square inch of these builds looks exactly like the original i mean it's it's amazing can yeah it is it's unbelievable i mean just like that the art department the every single tiny tiny crevice yeah is the exact same and so beneficial to the actors to be in such a real environment when playing pretend i just remember um when we were in the real house the scene you had a monologue in the kitchen mm-hmm. in that house. And of course they had the, or they're supposed to have the streets blocked off, obviously, when we were doing the takes. Yeah. The camera on, on this was on you, you know, facing out into the window. I mean, out to the street. I don't know if you remember, but after one of the takes, a FedEx truck <laughs> gone by. Yeah. And I saw it because I'm facing the window and you hadn't seen it yet. You know, we caught... And I remember thinking like, oh, my God. And, you know, and someone had said, yeah, we got to do that again because there was a FedEx truck that went by. And everyone's yeah. just like, God. Ah! <laughs> yeah. Keeping out the modern elements sometimes can be an unusual puzzle to solve. And then you're right. They create such a world that when you see something so modern, it really stands out even in the moment while you're shooting, because we're all so superimposed into the period while we're working. Exactly. Yeah. So I, it does obviously help to work on set on the in the studios, you know, because we have that bubble. We work yeah. in that, you know, bubble. No FedEx trucks going no by FedEx there. <laughs> yeah, they have protected us while building such a beautiful uh, surrounding environment that makes it all feel so real. Well, thank you for that. And while we're doing this, if anything else comes to mind, feel free to uh, talk about it however you'd like. Season one, episode four starts off with a flashback uh, back when it's sort of a montage thing while Barbara Streisand is singing Happy Days Are Here Again. And some are happy and some are not as Midge and Joel are moving through their what was their first apartment together. The editing is beautiful on that. Pretty extraordinary choreography of the direction and the editing. Mm-hmm. 
and the way one era blends so beautifully with another it caught my eye as well. Whether it's carrying Midge over the threshold or bringing baby Ethan home, hosting their friends at game night, I uh, thought it was just beautiful and, and so well done. I don't know if anything struck you. Well, I'll be honest, when I was um, re-watching it, it actually brought tears to my eyes because mm-hmm. of the fact that we are in the middle of shooting our last season right now. So that montage to me, just with also the song, you know, just the, you know, past, present kind of like moving on and just remembering everything. It just, it just really struck a chord with me. Yeah. With where I'm at right now. And I was, and I didn't expect that, you know, I'm sitting there watching thinking like, Oh, wow. The, the, the editing is just so beautiful. The choreography. And I'm just like, and all of a sudden I'm like, <laughs> at the, you know, at the end of that scene. Yeah. Which happens yeah. a lot, I feel like, when watching it. Because it's like, I don't, I don't know how it is for you. Because we're in it, right? We're in it. We're doing it. Yet, when the episodes come out, I'm watching it as an audience member. And I really am feeling like all this emotion sometimes. Especially, my God, the Lenny Bruce scene in this last season. That whole, you know, episode eight. And with you and Tony, you know, you in the hospital. And he's... yeah reading you the obituary that you know he wrote for you and it's just such a beautiful moment yeah people you know? have been reaching out to me a lot through socials or through texts and emails and and um about that exact moment where uh yeah the the show is not just but certainly season four very emotional and dramatic so when we get these in season one, when we're trying to establish the show as a comedy, there's still so much heart and drama throughout. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That really was setting a very strong precedent for seasons and episodes to come. And then the next scene, uh, the Weissman apartment, discovered Midge and all her things, simply moving in with her parents. Abe is locked in his study because there's boxes and things in the way. That's so funny. So funny. <laughs> okay. Just hearing Abe so frustrated is always a barrel of laughs for me. And Midge is back in her childhood room. That's the one where she's she doesn't have the comedy album yet. No, not yet, right? Not yet. Oh yeah, no, that's much later. No, that, that's much later. Yeah. yeah, but we in the episode, but we are establishing her in her childhood room. Right, right, right. In the main room, Ethan is watching TV. Oh, that's right. It's Liberace, right? It ends up Liberace on the typewriter doing what was called the typewriter song. Right. Which a lot of people did. I remember Jerry Lewis did it. A lot of people did that bit. My mom loved Liberace. Oh, yes. What older Polish woman did not love Liberace? I actually, I was lucky enough to visit the Liberace Museum in Vegas before they closed down. So that was a hoot. Oh, it must have been. That's a perfect word for it. Yeah, no, he was very popular (laughs) in my house as well. And there were no Polish people in the house, even with a name like Pollock. Uh, Yeah, he was as popular as any television performer had ever been. Or whatever be. He really was beloved. Oh, and then the next scene is that great newsstand with Susie Darius, played by Chaz Lamar Shepard, where we get a sense that this newsstand is Susie's office. <laughs> it's her first office. She's there handwriting her business cards. Only one. Yep. <laughs> Starting with one. And, but you get a real sense. She <laughs> makes such a big deal out of it's only one. How long it must have taken her to handwrite just one. I know. That was hysterical where she's just like... Oh, look, here's my business card. And the woman's like, great. And she's, and Susie's like, can I have that back, please? Yeah. Cause it's just the one. Yeah. It was so funny. And uh, Susie on the phone with Midge. Midge knows to reach her there at the newsstand. So they're able to establish this is a thing. Yeah. Just love that. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. Like you said, the establishing of all the characters, really, you know, in season one and, and their and worlds. Here she, yeah. In their worlds. And here we see, like the very genesis of like of Susie's business. Yeah, Susie Myerson and Associates. So because we had just seen her in the club, right? Or in her apartment before she starts out on her own as a businesswoman, in this case, talent manager. And so this is her first office. And I just love that it was a newsstand. I just thought that was such a strong choice. You know, instead of at a table in a restaurant or a bench in a park, just that period newsstand with all of its period accoutrements, whether it's candy or newspapers or all that detail really helped establish what the show was going to bring every week. Speaking of the candies, I don't know. If you, uh, do you remember that one table read we had where they had all the old yes. fashioned candies? Yeah. Everyone, everyone was just like, 
Freaked out. Don't mind. Don't mind if I do. Don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Freaked out. And it was just like, oh my God. Yeah. And it's funny that I just caught myself saying what they were trying to establish every week, but what, it, what the truth is every episode as first season, of course, first three seasons uh, were dropped all episodes same day. But in that first season, they were establishing so many specifics, the color palette, the song choice, the wardrobe, the cinematography, the super fast pace of the spoken word, you know. So that's one of the things I loved about the newsstand was how it really helped establish the physicality of Susie's office. And then we're back in the Weissman apartment. Let's see, Abe is trying to keep us calm while his world has been completely disrupted. He's being held hostage in his own home. That really... <laughs> noise him i remember i made a note there was one comment he made that absolutely floored me let's see yeah someone's defending leave ethan alone he's only three and he says when oh. i was three i could resole a shoe <laughs> oh was that, oh I, I thought you were gonna say something else because yeah. there's another line that, that got me but yeah that's a good one too yeah what that's was the one that got you he's a kid so i win um i can't remember exactly how he phrased it but i just thought it was absolutely hysterical like as, right. as the adult he's like he's the kid so therefore i win right so he's acting you know? like a child yeah it was yeah. a beautiful uh, <laughs> proving the point those little asides they are not lost on any of us back in the bedroom abe is still trying to hold his own ground oh and the conversation about keeping everything the way it was until joel comes back he's still under the guys of Joel coming back. And this is where in the storytelling where Abe has been told by Midge, he wanted to come back. And I said, no. And it was a big turn for Abe's character to know this, that by Midge's design, she was not letting her husband back in. And whereas Rose is still on the outside of that knowledge. Right. And yeah. now Abe is complicit in this lie. And we see some difficult moments for him because Rose is going to such length to yeah, she's still in that, I guess, for lack of a better word, that fantasy of, oh, he's going to come back. Yeah, strong belief. I have to say what um, what I extra loved about that scene was we see Rose having the same nightly beauty routine that we saw Midge have yes. um, a few episodes before. And I have to tell you, when I first saw that, because uh, we see Midge do that a few episodes before, when I first saw that, I practically fell out of my seat. Because my mom used to do that. Yeah. And I told, I said that to Amy. I was just like, oh my God, like no joke. My mom told me she used to do that. Right. And it's, it was great to see it this time around for Rose's character, as you mentioned, because Midge had to learn it somewhere. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Only a few episodes later, we see where she learned it, which was just great. And once again, little extra, Ethan is watching Howdy Doody on the old television, those little little black and white clips that are playing on the old TV were great. Yeah, I love when they do that. Yeah. And then the next scene does involve that record store you spoke of. Susie and Jackie are first at the Gaslight auditioning new acts. Midge comes in for a meeting. She's talking about her notebook. They're trying to create a stage name for her. Yeah, Susie thinks it's her diary. And she's like, I don't want to read your diary. And she's like, it's not my diary. But yeah. I'm writing jokes. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly looks like a diary. I mean, it, it was just great. Yeah, pink. It was like pink. Yeah, I don't want to get canceled <laughs> for saying this, but it was purposely very girly <laughs> by design. And then she says, yeah, let me take you to this record store. I want to take you someplace. And she takes her to this record store. You walk in and Midge is flipping out at how cool and funky it is. And then Susie says, follow me. And, and even removes this chain to the staircase leading down as in Forbidden Zone, that they're now venturing into. And that's where Midge finds the Red Fox album. What is this? Because I remember Susie saying, these are party albums. And I don't know about you, but my parents, I remember some, you know, being super young and hearing the term party album and not knowing for many years what the hell they were talking about. But stand-up acts like Red Fox and others were first only known through these party albums because right, yeah, either too risque or not acceptable? My parents did not, but some of my friends' parents did. Mm -hmm. Because for exactly what you just said, you know, they're risque. Yeah. You know, I did watch uh, as a kid Sanford and Son, though. Sure, so I definitely was a big fan of, you know, Red Fox. But So we watched all the sitcoms that these comedians 
were on. That's at least, uh, I've got to say, 15 years minimum after he had become a star from these party albums. Yeah. That you saw him as Anford. I mean, he really was a sensation. And you could probably assume that when these party albums, especially featuring Red Fox, were popular, there hadn't been a black stand-up comedian that was allowed to tour or famous. The very early ones, you know, um, of course, Dick Gregory, I think, was one of the first to play the Playboy Club. And it was only because he was sort of beloved by Hugh Hefner. When did uh, Sammy Davis Jr. play the Copa? But I don't know what year. Didn't he right. play the so Copa? He did, but he started as a song and dance man who was funny and did impressions, but okay. also was an all-around great entertainer. So just in terms of strictly stand-ups, and especially stand-ups doing the sort of material that Red Fox was doing, that was just not in the public square, if you will, the late 50s, mm -hmm. early 60s. Hence the chain, kind of the underground room right, where all of right. those Yeah, I love those two were. characters that were down there making... Um, these secret tapes and whatnot. Yeah. Jamie, who writes the little prep stuff here for us. I shouldn't say little because that diminishes her incredible effort, but she puts in these little extras. And one of which was in referring to those two guys down in the sort of dungeon of this record store, Susie says nerd alert, which is such a foreign thing to say in 1959. Whereas today it's rather common. And, and every now and then the show will drop one of those things where, you know, some of us have uh, alert in our minds, some of being me, uh, when a period piece uses jargon or vernacular of the modern day. Would geek have been a better choice? Or you're just saying, or it's the word alert? There's no better. It's just every now and then, because I, I early on talked to Amy and Dan about it, and they're, they were very comfortable just passing it off as, yeah, we don't care. And it wasn't that saying we don't care what you are saying. There's, there were like, we don't care that we use modern language on occasion or we'll put in a modern song on occasion. Yeah, I think that the, the episodes tend to end on a modern song during the when the credits are rolling. Right. So yeah. I learned pretty early on to stop bringing it to their attention, first of all. <laughs> but um, so that was a, a little thing that that stood out for me. And, and anyone who is like-minded in terms of modern-day vernacular sneaking into a period piece. Let's see. The next part is Weissman Apartment Building Elevator. Rose and Midge run into Loretta. Ah, yes, whose mother lives in the penthouse. And you get a sense of the first time Rose is telling a story about where Joel is and he got a promotion. And that Rose has built up a story, which is a theme that continues in many episodes and seasons to come. That Rose, Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. To save face, the character of Rose Weissman will certainly spin a yarn. Which is exactly what I was going to say with this past season. They come up with that whole story of why they moved back in. Yep. Why they're living with Midge. So it's like, it's the same thing. Like, let's, we have to have this whole like paragraph story to yes. tell all the neighbors <laughs> exactly right. what's going on. And none of it is true. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, there's a great Midge is listening to the record in her room. That was a part you remembered earlier. And <laughs> yes. Her mom comes in and catches her. It's It was so reminiscent of a mother and a teenage daughter, the way Midge overreacts to not wanting to be caught. That was kind of great. And then the game they play with the phone rings three times. And on the third one, Midge knows it's Joel uh, while they're at the dinner table trying not to talk politics. Um, I thought all that played really great. Yeah, I thought it was really great, too. Yeah, especially the scene of yeah the mother and you know, the yeah. daughter. Like yeah. that definitely, I mean, I've definitely been there, you know, she's like, what are you doing? Nothing. Yes. You know, and it's not, it, and it's not like she was really doing anything wrong. You know, she just didn't want to go there. She didn't want to go there and explain, yeah. you know. She's not her, ready, certainly, to tell anyone, let alone her parents, that she's having a career moment, the beginning of one, and she's going to pursue this. And that's what listening to that comedy album conversation might lead to. So yeah, it's right. pretty great. And we find out Joel is just calling because um, he's got a new apartment and he wants to see Ethan more, and uh, which is going to lead to an amazing conflict in a couple of scenes. But first, we go through Washington Square Park. Midge is out with Ethan and she's strolling along and she comes into Washington Square Park and finds a bit of a rally on um, protests and is very curious as Jane Jacobs a character is speaking against Robert Moses and building, what was it, a road through the park or some sort of? I think there was, he, they were going to 
I think, take down the park. Or cut through it. They were going to cut, cut through yeah. it with either a highway or road or something. And it was, people were up and arms. Oh, yeah. Because Robert Moses, yeah, he like knocked down neighborhoods. Like he was known for knocking down neighborhoods for urban renewal. Right. I do love that, that they bring that into the show's consciousness while you're watching, even if it's a name like Robert Moses, that if you never lived in New York, you might not know, but they stay true to what was happening at the time. Yeah, I love that too. And incorporate it. I love how they do that, where, like you just said, incorporate real parts of history into the show yeah, and incorporate the characters, especially Midge's character, into that specific point of history, you know, because she does go up and speak to the crowd, you know, because yeah. Jacobs is like, oh, you have something to say, come on up, you know, and then here we see her have a little moment again of her finding her footing of doing a stand-up. Yeah, what she's discovering you know? that I like is public speaking, which I'll tell you as a lifelong stand-up comedian, first thing I remember gathering as some sort of statistic is that public speaking is certainly America's number one fear above death. So those of us who have a calling to do it and come to it naturally, I've often said and believe it's my most comfortable place. But to the other 99.9% of the population, it's their greatest fear. It's really, it's it's really, really hard to be a stand-up comic. So well, I have just public speaking so at all. much. Has, yeah. Definitely, yeah, public speaking in general. Yeah. For sure. But someone recently asked me, because I'm on Maisel, um, if I want to become a stand-up comic now or if I'm going to try that. Because mm -hmm. it's such a random question. And I, without even thinking twice about it, I was like, um, no. You know, it's just so completely, it's such a niche, you know, and it's so different than acting, I feel. I just feel like it's just such a, it's so amazing for the people who can actually do it. Yeah. A lot of actors have to learn how to do talk shows. And it's been a different lesson over the decades, the awkwardness and the importance of promotion. Because you have to be yourself or a version of yourself, maybe that's heightened and entertaining, which in itself doesn't feel organic, but you're speaking your own words instead of a script. And um, so many have such a hard time with that. And that, again, goes back to public speaking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So she's very natural at it and gets in front of this group and gets some laughs, but also has, you know, sort of political things to say, which are embraced, which is kind of amazing. So then she finds her way to Joel's new apartment. And the door opens to his new apartment. And who is it but Penny Pan, <laughs> his uh, old assistant that was allegedly part of the reason he was leaving his wife, Midge. And that whole scene and the way it's shot and the set design and how the hallway, even the lobby of the apartment building, which he comments, the elevator, the elevator operator, so similar to the home he shared with Midge. And she comments on that. Only it's the Methodist version. Right. It's almost like a, a Twilight Zone episode. Like you right. walk in and oh, it's good. like it's like a different dimension, but yet hold on a second. They're the same but different. Yeah. Yeah. Not sure how you took the Jew out of this, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> but and she loves to sort of bust his chops on it. And you can see him struggling with the truth of that, which is great. And then he yeah, finally yeah, has led to this confession that explains it wasn't just Penny and it wasn't even her. You know, he had to leave, as he explains it, because after he bombed that night at the gaslight, he feared Midge would never look at him the same way. The same ever. again. Yeah. yeah, there's just so much, so many layers there. I mean, basically, like his ego was, you know, bruised. And then, yeah. he, you know, he made that assumption and just made those decisions on his own, basically. Yeah. Yeah, his brought to that realization of her pushing him to a breaking point was kind of beautiful. And then one of her remarks, one of her disses of him and Penny and this little fake world they've created together that Jamie wrote down as an extra is when Mid says, apparently pot roast is the Methodist brisket. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> it's really great. But yeah, it gives you a little more light on... What the hell Joel's thinking, how shallow his exit was, why he's regretting it, how he's been told by Midge, it's over, you left, you're out. And he's trying to create this similar world 
and she's just calling him out on it. It's just beautiful. It's just great. Yeah, it was really great. And I do think it's also, you know, so period specific too. Yeah. I mean, a lot of decades across the board, but for that time period um, in particular where the husband, the man was supposed to be seen on, you know, the pedestal, you know, he's the breadwinner, you know, the wife is the mother, she stays home, takes care of the kids and, you know, housewife and stuff. But so that mentality that he has, I feel is also where society was very specifically then in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. With that idea. Right. You know, and he just can't live with that. He almost has like his tail between his legs. Like he said, like, oh, she's not going to see me on this pedestal anymore. She's not going to love me. She's not going to worship me, you know, in that sense. A man needed to be worshipped. Great point. The next scene is the first time Midge takes off her wedding ring before she meets up with Susie on a run of random comedy clubs ending with a visit to the Copa and seeing Red Skelton perform. All that is so great. Let's see, Howard Fawn mistakes Midge taking notes for stealing his act. Yeah, for Buddy Hackett. Yeah, that's the name of the character. And he was such a typical stand-up comedian for the time, which was, I thought, a great thing to showcase in terms of the type of comedy that people were doing at the time. Because otherwise, we're only seeing The Gaslight, which is a coffee house. I think this was one of the first times, other than seeing Lenny perform, we're seeing... The inside of comedy clubs. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not even sensing it's a comedy club until Susie points out, you know, this is upstairs, downstairs, typical comedy club situation. Everyone's dressed nice. It seems like a sort of what they would call uptown experience and more straightforward as opposed to any edge. I just love that they showcase that. And then when you see Red Skelton perform at the Copa, boy, that's really homogenized for the masses type of material, just to let you know the sort of stuff that was being done at the time, especially by the older guard, which Red would have already been considered at that point. I love how when they were going to all these clubs and Susie basically is being her, you know, teacher and Midge is like the good student, like she's just, you know, taking notes everywhere at every place, which is what you said that, that, you know, then that comic thinks that she's stealing his jokes because she's writing notes down yeah and i love her instinct is just to stand up to him uh, no apologies because she knows she hasn't done anything wrong she's such a strong-willed person as a character that i just love she's just a really strong minded and willed human yeah we see that already you know when she's speaking at that rally that we just talked about right yes she goes up there but she's standing up for women and even what i loved about that also because what you just said like here's this woman standing up for herself i can't remember exactly what she says but she said something like oh we're gonna we're gonna stand up for our rights and we're gonna look great doing it yeah or something you know something along those lines where it's just like we're you know we're still women and because we're women doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand up exactly yeah Yeah. it's kind of great and Susie has to offer up some business cards when she's schmoozing at that club, she sees a big time talent agent, introduces herself, and he asks for a few extra cards for his partners. She has to cough up four of them. I was going to say now she had like three or something. <laughs> yeah, it really killed her to have to unload four of the existing eight that she had handwritten. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty great. No, that's yeah. Um, but it was just great to see the two of them in in the element of you know, what's next? Doing some homework. Midge points out she's a great student. She studies well. She researches. She always has in college. And that was really empowering, I felt, for someone taking it seriously, unlike Joel Maisel, who started out by lifting a famous comedian's act, Yep. Um, which I've said a lot of comedians started out that way. Even when I was coming up in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, whatever little hometown or environment you came from before you performed on the stages of the big city, in my case, San Francisco. My friends would love it when I would memorize and perform a piece of material from Steve Martin's first album or whoever, you know, George Carlin Pryor, whoever it was. And they didn't think I had made it up and I wasn't passing it off as my own. It was just a way to share it because they hadn't heard the albums yet. You know, Do you ever feel when you were coming up as a comedian that you had to write jokes that were that much more unique so that way people couldn't steal them? Because if you heard another comic say that particular joke, then someone can go back to you and say, no, that's Kevin's joke. Well, the first thing you learn is to find your voice. And your voice is simply your POV or point of view. Once you find your point of view, your outlook on all things life, 
once you find what is my voice, what is my opinion of everything, then everything becomes material. You could talk about anything. Once you find your particular, whether you are a person whose act is about complaining or in the case of, say, you know, various comedians do a version of self-deprecation, you know, I get no respect being the most obvious example, but there's a lot of self-deprecating styles. Right, right. And then that's just the POV that you look through all situations in life. So the first thing I was sort of learned was, while early on I was just doing impersonations and didn't have a voice of my own, and while I was hiding behind those impersonations of famous people and creating scenarios for them to be involved in, I started to work more and more on when I do speak as myself, I need to have a point of view. I need to really, not necessarily something to say politically or socially, but you know, even if my point of view is just being sarcastic or you know, a sarcastic twit who, you know, as Dana Carvey would boil down Dennis Miller's act when they were both on Saturday Night Live, <laughs> he would say, topic, reference, indifference. Those are the three beats of a Dennis Miller joke. Right, right. And that was so specific to him. Right. Yeah. So that was a point of view that was very, very specific. And then you would see knockoffs of that or Jerry Seinfeld being a part of the, what is the deal with dot, 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 you know? And that was just a way of poking fun at everyday life, nuanced, tiny annoyances that him and Larry David made wonderful careers out of. But it was a, a very specific point of view. And then once you find that, if you end up talking about a similar topic as other comedians, whether it's a McDonald's joke, a joke about McDonald's. I remember Jay Leno very early on, 35 years ago, saying things like, you know, listen, if you, you got a McDonald's joke, you know, just make sure yours is the funniest. That's all that matters, you know. Well, he didn't really care if you're using topics that were similar to other comedians. You just want to be original in your take. Right, right. On that time. And one of the things I really love about the Miriam Midge Maisel character is she right out of the shoot, she has a voice before she has material. When she stumbles on stage in a booze-infused rant, she's not performing, she's just talking. Right. It's a stream of conscious, but she's not consciously trying to be funny. And it's Susie who sees how funny it is and how naturally gifted she is and how stream of conscious comedy wasn't even a thing at that point. Right. Which is what I, what I thought that was so interesting, especially in this episode, while she's taking these notes, because yeah. Susie is pointing out the, oh, see Rhythms. that coming exactly like set up punchline, you know, and like trying to teach her that old school way. Take a pause there and you'll get two laughs where there's only one. Yeah. Exactly. And Midge makes a note of, oh, I like the way he leans on that stool. Right. Yeah, and those are the things. End. Yeah, I, I, I do remember I would come out on stage. This was in my last stand-up special. And I found a way. You, one of the first things you want to do is get the mic stand the hell out of the way. And there's a lot of clunky ways to do it. And I found if, you, if most mic stands have a round base. So if you lean it back from the top onto the edge of the round base and you kick the bottom of the stand part just above the base, it will roll. The base will roll away from you if you hold on to the top of it, and you can sort of remove it that way. And I remember doing that in my last stand-up special, and I got a phone call from Jerry Lewis, who I had, hadn't met, and who loved the special and wanted to tell me about it in great detail. And the first thing he said was, the move with the mic stand, did you have to join a separate union for that? <laughs> yeah, but it's funny how you make those conscious decisions that you don't want people to notice, but you do want them to notice, but it's all a part of the package and the style. And for me, it was, it's really about let the audience know in the first minute they're in the hands of a profession, because especially when you're not known, oh my goodness, when you're not known, then the audience would cut you no break. And it was one of the very first important lessons was that comfort, ease, and professionalism on stage, not necessarily slick or polished, but just, I know what I'm doing. Relax as a message. Yeah. And put the hecklers in place. Well, that's the that's the part of the instructions. <laughs> Steve Martin did a pretty great thing on his first comedy album about that. And various comedians have figured out a way to deal with it over the years. And we're also recording this less than a week after Will Smith took the stage at the Academy Awards and slapped Chris Rock. And so I will tell you, I once had a heckler was giving me such a bad time and I was just feeding it back to him 
and getting all the laughs. And finally, he stood up and walked towards the side of the stage where the stairs were that would lead him to me. And I realized he was going to come on stage. And so I started to think, what will I do when he gets close enough? Unlike Chris Rock, I had time to sort of do some math here. And so by the time he reached me, he was six five, two and a half, hundred pounds. Wow. He was big. So big that it was easy for me to play coward in a comedic way. So as he got close enough, arms reach, I handed him the microphone. And then I jumped off stage straight into the area of the audience where he was seated. And I took his seat. Well, that's fantastic. And started heckling him. Oh, that's so brilliant. <laughs> well, again, it was because I had time to do the math like, okay, we need a plan. We need a fast plan. What is the coward's way out? which will also be funny. And then what is the next phase of that move? You know, so I did have an experience where someone took the stage and I felt physically threatened for sure. Like if I hadn't figured out a way to hand him the mic and get the fuck off the stage, uh, there was going to be some physical damage to my person. Yeah, that's so scary. What ended up happening? Did he basically like he was just like, oh, crap. And then he just like, yeah. Yes, that's exactly it. Because he was not prepared at all to be handed the microphone. Right. He was coming up on stage to accost me physically. And he was drunk. This was not a right thinking person. Otherwise, he would have been a sociopath. That's what I'm saying. Stand up comics are in their own league. It's, you know, beyond public speaking because you're dealing with the live audience. You're dealing with people shouting things back at you, possibly. You know, it's like in the moment. It's, you know, yeah. it's right there. You're, you're really putting yourself, you know, out there. And I just have such huge respect. There's a level of vulnerability for sure. And you want the audience to sense that while also feeling like you're in command. You're selling a lot of parts of you up there to keep them on your side and keep them engaged, but also charm them. You know, some comedians don't care about these things. And I was sort of brought up in a world where you did. We should say that when Midge gets home from that last scene, Abe and Rose are awake. They turn a light on. Where have you been? What are you doing? They're back to playing parents with a young daughter. Yeah, I just thought that was hysterical. And I have to say, my mom actually still does that. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, when I stay with her when I visit. Sure. You know, not in a mean way, like she knows when I go out, right? But she will, you know, stay up. She won't go to sleep until I'm actually back home. And she's just like, I can't sleep until I know you're back inside the house. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a parent thing, isn't it? Yeah, I just thought that scene was absolutely hysterical where it's like he basically, well, he gives her a curfew. Gives her a curfew, practically grounds her. My house, my rules. Yeah, exactly. He tries that. It's not going well. Uh, let's see. Rose comes in and Midge tells her that Joel moved in with Penny. And then eventually Midge is on her own and she steps out on the fire escape and watches her neighbors watch Jack Bar. Yeah, which is a great New York moment. Really is. With the fire escape. Fire escape and also being aware of the world outside of you. And sometimes that world is myopic into your neighbor's window. And she says to herself, I have to get a job. So she's taking responsibility after the night she had and the indulgence of doing some homework and some studying, forged by seeing Joel and Penny together, living the non-Jewish version. All those things sort of lead her and propel her forward, which is one of the things I love about the constant of the creative process of Amy and Dan and this central character. Yeah, there's there's always movement. There's momentum. There's momentum. Some kind. Momentum. Even when in, yeah. Even when there seems to be no momentum, you sense that she would like to be moving forward. <laughs> right. Or even if you think there's some backward movement and it's just like, I don't want to use the word illusion of backward movement, but sometimes you do have to move back a little bit in order to, what's that phrase? Take one step back to move two steps forward. Sure. Even if it's reassessing. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Any other thoughts or comments about season one, episode four, as we're wrapping this up? I love the establishing of smidge. Yeah. Of Susie and Midge's friendship. You're really just starting to see that right. in this episode, you know, when they're at the hot dog stand. Right. Where they're kind of sharing things with each other. And Susie definitely more reluctantly, but she still says a little something, you know, about her, which is like speaks volumes, she says about her family, you know, oh, but yeah. she just kind of like spits that out. And but I just think that's just, you know, really beautiful. I think the show does a really great job at establishing relationships. Like you you see that from the beginning, and then you can see that the growth, yeah. gonna, you know, you see that growth throughout the seasons. Yeah. Yeah, there is even a point where Mid says, I think towards the end of it, 
we'll do this again. And not as friends, as professionals, you know, not wanting to keep that pressure on, on Susie because she's sensing maybe a professional relationship shows more respect. Right. Exactly. Even the, yeah, even though Midge is like, let's be best, you know, <laughs> let's be friends. <laughs> well, that's the only <laughs> w- world she knows, right? Right. You sense that this is her first job. Right. And yeah, and Susie definitely has that wall up around her to obviously, you know, try to keep herself, I think, emotionally safe from not being, you know, hurt from other people, I think, based on what she kind of little, the little stuff that she said about her family. Yeah. Yeah. We, we do get a first sense of the Susie character background, which is beautiful and wonderful and helpful and keeps pulling us in further. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, um, I guess how traumatic her childhood, like, so then it, you kind of get the idea of like, now you see why, like she always has like her haunches up. Yeah. You know? Well, thank you, Matilda. Well, thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Shadagus or however you insist on yes. pronouncing it. You you got it right. That uh-huh. was it. Shadagus, yeah. <laughs> There's just too many there. It's your name starts with four consonants. It takes to the fifth letter in your last name to come up with a vowel. Yes, Exactly. Well, no, I guess it's three because there's a Y. Sorry, my bad. There's well, a Y in there. Sometimes Y. Sometimes Y. <laughs> sometimes Y. <laughs> well, thank you, Matilda. Thank you so much, Kevin. This was so much fun. It's a joy to, to work with you and to get to know you and also to have you here sharing you. with the fans. Any and thank all you very insights. Much. Yeah. So I'll see you on set. Yes, I will see you at the next table read. Okay, cool. Awesome. Thank you so much again. You bet. Well, yes, as threatened, that was a lovely and informative and entertaining conversation, in my view. Write to me. Let me know what you thought of it. Uh, Yes, please. Look forward to reading more emails. Please, please, please. Tell everyone you've ever met, rate, review, help in any way you can to support this podcast effort. Remember, I threatened from the outset in episode one of this pod that there were prizes to be had. And oh, there are. A bounty, a wealth, a treasure trove. And I'm depending on you to participate for a chance to win one of these many offerings threatened. I will get to a couple of emails here in a moment, but that was a lovely chat with Matilda. Doing a little deeper dive into the world of stand-up comedy as episode four, season one, really sets our hero, Midge, on her journey of stand-up comedy as a profession, a job, what it means to start out in that new world. I might have overshared of my own experience of the stand-up comedy, but I'm going to continue to do that. It happens in other episodes, the very next episode of this podcast, in fact, with our very own Caroline Aaron. Oh, the love. All right, write to us, please. My Mrs. Maisel pod at gmail.com. My Mrs. Maisel pod at gmail.com. Trying to get it stuck in your heads. Find the time, make the time, please. And thank you. And now let's get to a couple of your emails. I mentioned also in the first episode that I'm going to be bringing you some chats with people off of the show, big stars, famous people who just happen to be enormous fans of the show. Those are lining up now. Those are being recorded now. Those will be shared with you ASAP. And I'm uh, super excited to get into that aspect of this podcast as well. But now let's hear from you, you, the glorious listeners, as we open up the fan mail bag. Thank you all for writing in to my Mrs. at gmail.com. It's greatly appreciated. There have been hundreds and hundreds of emails already, and I'm trying to get to them as I can. This one actually dates back to before the first episode of the pod dropped. So this is like I announced that I was going to think about doing the pod, that I announced that I was going to do the pod, and I announced the email, and Melissa was kind enough to write in with the following. Hiya! Thank you all for sharing the show with all of us all these years. Truly one of my favorites, and I was sad to see it end. My question for the cast is, do all of you guys smoke off screen now? Because wowza, there was some smoke in all the scenes over the years. <laughs> there's a second part of the question, which I'll answer the first part first. So there's only one cast member of the starring cast. You know, you don't call them the starring cast. Series regulars. That smokes. Maybe I should have a contest. See if you can guess who it is. It's Caroline Aaron. I've tried and tried and tried to get her to quit. I think we've all pitched in getting in her face, and uh, she won't budge. Even when she got COVID, she uh, apparently quit smoking for a week and then was, yeah, bless her heart. She's on an upcoming episode. 
And um, I will ask her to maybe answer this question as well, to get a little inside as to how tough it was for her sometimes to sneak off and smoke. But in terms of the smoke on screen, well, that's not tobacco smoke. Yeah, that's special effects. We all breathe it, and we are all told religiously that it was safe. <laughs> question two. Also, I've been in NYC in the summer, and I was sweating like a whore in church, so I wondered if all the scenes were shot in cooler temps because the wardrobe with the coats and the hats had to have been hot if they weren't. Wishing you all the best. Can't wait to rewatch the show. Melissa. Thank you, Melissa. So we rarely shot exteriors. I would say less than 10%. And the interiors were shot at Steiner Studios in Brooklyn. And they had extraordinary air conditioning units. In fact, because of COVID, I think I talk about it in one of the episodes, we had our own COVID czar. And uh, they all worked hard to create an airflow system replicating the outdoors and a much larger soundstage. I think we went from 28,000 square feet to 63,000 square feet. Yeah. When we went back to work in 2021, January, we were one of the only shows, I think, back working at that point during the COVID outbreak, COVID-19, some of you may remember, and bless you if you lost someone or if you yourself were seriously damaged by that horrendous virus. So yeah, we worked in the luxury of air conditioning to answer your hot, sweaty summer New York Horn Church question. But thank you for that. Here's another question. This one from Bill, which reads, Hi, Kevin. I love your idea of rewatching the series as the basis of a podcast. I would definitely tune in to that. Would you? Did you? Have you? A few questions. The attention to detail in the show was remarkable, especially in the clothing. For you, playing Moish. How did being in the garment business affect your character's personality? And as an actor, does having such accurate period clothes make it easier for you to find the character? Well, these are great questions. I feel they're answered um, in some of the uh, podcast episodes to come, but uh, I wanted to pull up your email, Bill, because it was... um you know, pretty insightful. Also, I like the early ones before the pod dropped, so I wanted to give thanks and a shout out to you. And let's see. So, yeah, no question the period clothing, as you put it on, helps you become the period character. No question. And uh, I think Caroline Aaron in her episode of the podcast talks upcoming in a couple of weeks, talks about in depth the torture of the female participants in the cast who had to wear layers and layers and layers of period clothing that you never saw, but there it was. Talk about getting into character, mm. physically, emotionally, mentally, uncomfortably. And then in terms of my character being in the garment district and, and how it affected my character's personality, well, it sort of drove it, didn't it? He was all about the business. He was all about what he did with his hands and what he built with his hands. And yeah, very much so. It's who he is. And as the series progresses and gets to a final season, that really comes into play. So thank you, Bill, for your lovely, wonderful thoughtful question. The end of your email is, I'll be looking forward to more news. In my family, you're a real MVP, Kevin. One of those actors who always makes a show better. Love you and better things, too, with admiration, Bill. Thank you, Bill. I loved being in better things, too, too. Yep. Continue writing to my at gmail.com. I threatened prizes. Some of you may be wondering who had your questions answered. Hey, where's my prize? So you have to write into the show. You have to have your question read on the show to be eligible. Prizes will be announced soon. Oh, yes. There you have it. Episode four of this here, my Mrs. Maisel pod. Remember to watch The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime. Please. Listen and subscribe to My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you're listening now. Or, of course, listen to My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Amazon Music. Just ask Alexa. Alexa, play My Mrs. Maisel Pod on Amazon Music, won't you? This is your host, Kevin Pollack, thanking you with all of my heart. I will see you all in my dreams. And until then, please be kind to each other.
Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q-Code. Q-Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators, Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.